Okay, so I guess the lab scared everybody away. Did pretty good through last time. I'll remember, I won't count you, I saw you before, so. I won't count you late. But the lab must have scared everybody away, I guess, then. Or a big chunk. That or there's some big traffic jam I don't know about yet. <laughs> so, that happens around here. Lovely thing about living around a, a city right around the rivers, right? Because if something happens on a bridge, yes? Is there? That might be what it is. I know there was one class last fall where I didn't make it in because I was coming from the western edge of the state and I got to Harrisburg, you know, a couple hours to spare. And the bridge, North Bridge over towards 322 was shut down. And then there was an accident on 11 and 15 where they were detouring people. So I was like, well, we're just sitting here. So I actually had to cancel class because I couldn't, <laughs> almost could have walked, it, walked here in time. But so, okay. Assignments. We have an extra credit assignment due today. I know a number of you have already done it. So if you haven't, go ahead and get me that emailed today for the podcast. And I'll get you, if you've done it already and you've emailed me, you should have your points unless you emailed me in the last hour or so. If you emailed me by yesterday, I caught everything up this morning. So if you haven't gotten that, you should see your points on there. Quiz 1 will be available starting later today. I'm finishing it up. It's not quite ready yet. So I'll have that up sometime this afternoon. Before I leave today, I'll have it up, so you will have it available if you want to look at it. It will cover Chapter 0, which we're almost done with, and Chapter 1. So you may not want to go take it today, because we'll have finished Chapter 0 and started Chapter 1, but we won't have finished all of the material yet. So you may want to wait until at least Wednesday. I hope to be through most of Chapter 1 by Wednesday, because... Well, first of all, you've got a homework due on Friday, and I'd like to be through most of the material for you. And we have an exam coming up a week after that. Now everybody runs for the door, right? Come on. No. But I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick to that exam date. The first other ones I may change if, you know, we need to get through the material, but I'm going to stick to the 9th for the first one, mainly because the 12th is the 50% drop deadline. So that gives me, you take the exam on the 9th, I can grade it and give it back to you on the 12th when we come back on Monday. And if you decide you just completely bombed it and you want out of here, you've got a chance to still get 50% back. Whereas if I delay it till Monday and you don't get it back till Wednesday, you know, your drop is a drop. So I'm hoping that doesn't happen to anybody, but occasionally it does. And I'd rather have you have that first exam done and back to you before that drop deadline if I at all can. I'm not going to extend it. Now the other ones, like exam two, well, I may extend it a day if we want to get through all the material. So if we do not get through all of Chapter 2, it will cover whatever part of Chapter 2 we got up to. So, but we have four lectures in the meantime. We got today and Wednesday and Friday and then Wednesday because we don't have class. No class next Monday, right? Okay. I won't be here. Nobody else show up, right? Probably have everything locked up anyway. So that's what's coming up. And exam is Chapter 0 through 2 or as far as we get through into two. We'll be into two whether we'll have finished it. I'm not sure. We should be able to though. Chapter, first couple chapters are relatively short. Okay, questions on that? No? No? Ready to go. Okay. You only have to put up with me one hour today as compared to two on Friday, so it's get off easy today. Picture of the day today. Any idea what we're looking at? More applicable to this class than the previous one, well, later in the semester. 
What types of objects do we see? Maybe? Galaxies. The four brighter objects here are galaxies. Actually, a group of galaxies. The other bright objects with these little spikes going through them are stars. Now, those st the, the diffraction pattern, we call it here, we'll talk about that when we talk about telescopes, uh, I think, after the exam, is actually caused by the mechanism of the telescope. So anything that looks like a point to the telescope will form that kind of pattern. So you don't see it along the galaxies because they're big. They actually have a size to them. Whereas the stars, even though they look like they have a certain size here, that's just overwhelming the material that's collecting the light. So it just sort of floods in. They're actually a point. And anything that looks like a point gets this kind of diffraction pattern on it. We also see, I say we see a number of three different galaxies here. And they don't look, they're not like the big beautiful galaxies. Some of the other ones that we may have looked at, I think we looked at a couple here, had the nice big spiral arms. Well, this one's got some spiral arms to it, right? But they're kind of, look like they're stretched out. This one's tilted a little bit, so it's harder to see, but it looks a little unusual. This one almost looks like a ring. Looks like it's got a couple rings, like something splashed through it in the water, and you've got rings going out. And the other one looks a little plainer. This, would be, this is actually, these are actually spiral galaxies, these three. This one would actually be what we call an elliptical galaxy. Now we'll come back in November and we'll be talking about these in much more detail, these types of galaxies. Elliptical galaxies are like a big ball. So maybe a big, big basketball or a big football depending on their exact shape. They might be a little flattened like a football or they might be round, almost completely round like a basketball. But they're just a big glob of stars. The spiral galaxies are a disk. So they're flattened more like a frisbee and have the spiral arms, have arms of the stars going out there. Now the idea of the picture was that, as I said, these three galaxies, they don't look like those nice, big, beautiful spiral galaxies that we have, may have looked at in other pictures. They're all distorted. So they have all sorts of you know, this one has rings, this one the arms look like they're twisted out, this one looks like it has other stuff going on around it. And the whole idea is that in these groups, the galaxies actually interact with each other gravitationally. So they tug on each other. So one of these, this galaxy may have over the last hundred million years, relatively short time, been closer to a galaxy and it may be getting distorted. It's being pulled by the gravity of all the stars in these other galaxies. So as they pass by each other, it distorts them and gives very interesting shapes. And in fact, we'll look at some of those later in the class when we talk about uh, galaxies and galaxy collisions and see the different, some of the very more, even more interesting shapes that galaxies can be twisted into just by gravity. The other thing that is mentioned in these is that it's talking about how galaxies are made. So galaxies formed shortly after the universe, but they formed as little teeny tiny galaxies. Not just, you know, not big spiral galaxies, but just little groupings of stars, clumps of stars, you know, a few million stars. And then over time, they slowly ate each other, you know, cannibalized each other, grabbed, you know, collided, stuck together, and formed bigger and bigger galaxies. So the big, beautiful galaxies that we see today, those nice, majestic spiral arms, were formed by galaxies like these that may have collided and coalesced together over time. They've slowly eaten all the little galaxies around it.
The other thing you might notice in here, as I said, I pointed out the brighter objects, the brighter stars and brighter galaxies. There are a few other galaxies scattered around here that may be more distant ones. You can see any little fuzzy areas or relatively bright areas that are and that do not have that little cross pattern through them are also galaxies as well. So anything a little fuzzier, maybe a little distorted in long ways, or maybe galaxies that are much more distant than these. These are relatively close for a group of galaxies. Again, relatively close in astronomy is nothing like relatively close on the Earth. These are about 100 million light years away. But astronomically for a cluster of galaxies, that's not that bad. The Andromeda galaxy is about 2 million light years away. So they're about 50 50 times further away than Andromeda. So just jumping ahead a little bit in the class, but that's one of the things that this using this picture of the day does. Sometimes we jump ahead, sometimes we'll jump back. We might see something from the beginning of the class when we get to the end of the class. And we might see something that we never would have talked about otherwise. So you get some interesting things this way. So for example, my planetary class just got to talk about galaxies for a few minutes. That they won't talk about the rest of the class, whereas you guys will get it. Questions? Questions? No? Okay. We're ready to go. All right, we were on, we had just finished up distance. We had talked a little bit about the beginning of distances. And we have just a couple slides here. We're almost done. Almost done with this chapter. Okay. All right. Science and the scientific method. So we're going to talk about here briefly different types of science, what the different types of scientific theory. So what is a scientific theory? It has to have a certain couple of properties. And the biggest one is that it has to be testable. It has to be something that I can go and test. So a scientific theory that says Einstein is the greatest scientist in history, is it a scientific theory? Is there any way to test whether he is the greatest scientist ever? There's no way to test. There's nothing. It's going to be an opinion. It would be sort of like judging art. You know, judging an art would be a, not a scientific thing. You can't judge it scientifically because there's no easy way to just go and say, we can test, we can do some tests and say that this is the best painting ever. You know, it's a matter of opinions. And what some people love, other people are going to hate. And the same thing with scientific theories. I can make a scientific theory that says the moon is made up of green cheese. It's a good scientific theory, right? Can I test it? I'm going to prove it wrong, right? But I can still go test it. So it has to be something you can, te- you can test. But we could take a rocket ship to the moon. You know, We'll get hacked to pay for a field trip to the moon. And we'll go check and find out if my scientific theory is right or wrong. Now, I don't think they'll go for that. But got a new president, maybe. Could try. It also has to be, so it has to be able to be tested. And you have to test it. You know, if you just make the theory and then don't test it, it doesn't do any good. You have to actually continually test it. It should be simple and it should be called elegant. It's the ideas. You want something that's simple and elegant, something that's just very easy to understand. Theories tend to get more and more complicated over time. And actually as they tend to do that, and we'll talk about that next, this chapter or this coming chapter or the next one. 
When we talk about the planets, it's one thing that happened. The theory of the motion of the planets started out very simple. Everything moved around the Earth. It was wrong, but it's still it's a good scientific theory. We could test things. We could, everything moved around the Earth and they moved in circles. But as we continually tested and made observations, we predicted where the planets were supposed to be, and when you found out they weren't in that space and you started to have not just it's orbiting around the Earth, but there's another little circle orbiting, and you ended up with all these hundreds and hundreds of circles, it got, didn't get very simple. Oops. It became unsimple or complicated. Get to sign in for me. So if they get too complicated, then you start looking for a new theory. You can still make the theory work sometimes. You can still force it to work. But as it becomes more and more complicated, you have to look for other ways to, do the, to, prove, to, to explain maybe what you see. Maybe we need a different method. A scientific theory can be proven wrong, but never be proven right. So I can give you evidence that confirms a theory, but as I said, they have to be continually tested. It's very easy to prove something wrong, right? You just got to find one confirmed example that says it's wrong. It's very easy to prove it wrong. But you've got to prove it right in every single possible case. So you can prove it right here, but then what are the, what's going to change, what might change? What else could be observed? What else can we find? For example, we use, and we'll talk about Newton's law of gravity in a little bit. Newton's law of gravity, or theory of gravity, however you want to look at it, is wrong. It doesn't work exactly all the time. We still use it. We're going to go over it in this class. You'll still use it if you take a physics class. You're going to use Newton because it works for most cases. But it's not right in all cases. It can't predict the motion of Mercury properly. And that was one of the failings of it. They didn't know whether something was wrong with Mercury or something was wrong with Newton's law. And it turns out it was Newton's law that was wrong. And it took Einstein's relativity to explain how Mercury actually orbits. And again, we'll come back to that a little later on, but just as an example, even a theory that's proven wrong might still be useful. You know, we don't want to throw out Newton and instead, in basic physics class, just start with general relativity. Enrollments would go way down if you had to start off with all that. Thank you. Yep. So, that's just the idea. So you can prove one wrong, but you can't prove them right with 100% certainty. Over time, you can get ones that are more and more right, and you tend to accept them. You tend to accept them more. Come on. All right, let me end out of that. There we go. Now how do we go about this, making the observations? Observation, we start off with an observation. So any scientific theory starts off with, an obser with observing something. So if you think about, we just talked about Newton, you know, the, the idea of Newton was that he saw the apple fall. So you see something happen. You know, an apple falls to the ground, why does it fall? There's something in the ground that pulls it down, right? Okay, we know it is gravity, but could there be something else? And you would go to that, it would make predictions. 
So you make some sort of that and you come up with some sort of theory as to why the apple falls to the ground. Maybe the tree's pushing it away. Right? That would, would that work as well? Tree's pushing it away. But then you'd make other then you then you'd, it would make a prediction that what would happen to the apple that's near the top of the tree if it were to fall? The tree's pushing it away, where should it go? It should go up, right? So it would make a prediction, but then when you watch that upper apple fall, and it doesn't fall down, it doesn't go up, and it falls down, then you've got to revise your theory. So your theory and a lot of, a lot of scientific theories you know, don't last very long. You, know, you make a theory and it just doesn't quite work. So something was off. But it makes predictions. The whole idea is that you, make your obs you see some observations, you come up with your theory, you make predictions, and you see if they're true or not. And then you go back and so you make, you make your predictions, you observe, are your predictions true? Does that apple at the top of the tree go flying up into the air? No. So then you've got to go back and revise your theory. And it will make a new prediction. And again, and it's a continuing process. And it's always even, even the most you know, even Einstein's relativity, you'll currently try to revise it and find out where does it work and where does it not. Newton's gravity works in almost every case that we're familiar with. Almost everything we're used to seeing on our everyday basis works for works Newton's. A few little things do not. A few little extreme cases do not and that eventually led to Einstein's relativity. So again, that's just an overview of the science and talking about science and scientific method. And then what I'm going to go to next is I'm just going to go over, at the end of each chapter, I go through like a little summary of each of the sections. So if my little, okay. So just as a summary, so sort of just what we've talked about uh, on Thursday, on, on Thursday, on Wednesday and Friday. Everybody was here Thursday, right? No? Okay. It's just me. Astro what is astronomy? Astronomy is just studying the universe, so everything in the universe. We talked briefly about the stars being on a celestial sphere. So when you look out there, you go stand out at the sky at night and you look up at this big sphere or half sphere that's above us. It's a useful way of describing location. And again, you're going back many thousands of years. You're sort of putting the Earth back at the center when we do this. Putting the Earth back at the center of the universe. But it's useful for describing locations of things in the sky and to be able to find things and setting up the coordinate system. The Earth's orbit around the Sun is called the ecliptic, is the name of it, and that's also the apparent path the Sun seems to take on the sky over the course of the year. Not the rising and setting of a day, but over a year when you track it relative to the stars. And that's tilted at 23.5 degrees, and that also causes the seasons, that 23.5 degree tilt. So if the Earth were not tilted, if it were tilted at zero degrees and pointed straight up and down, we wouldn't have any seasons. You wouldn't have a summer, you wouldn't have winter. It would be like spring or fall all year round. If it weren't for that tilt. If that tilt were more, then you'd get even worse seasons. right? If it were tilted at 40 degrees, then you'd get even more extreme seasons. It would get even hotter in the summer and even colder in the winter. If it were tilted at, see if you get up to 50 degrees, you'd actually get to the point where Harrisburg would have a day with all sunlight and a day with no sunlight. 
It's like if you have to go, I got to go up to the Arctic to get you know the land of the midnight sun. Well, you'd have if you got if you got the Earth tilted about twice as much, you'd get to that about in Harrisburg. So you'd actually have enough where you could you could have you'd have a day where the sun never set. Gets up in the sky, gets very low, then you know goes down behind the buildings and comes back up. Never actually sets, and you'd have a day in the middle of winter when it never rose. The moon, we talked briefly about the moon. We talked about the phases of the moon. I didn't, don't think I specifically said that the moon shines by reflected light last time when I talked about that. The moon does not give off its own light. It just reflects light from the sun. So it doesn't generate its own light. Same for any of the planets. None of the planets give off their own light. They're all just reflected light from the sun that we're seeing. When we look at the stars and galaxies, they're generating their own light. But the only thing in our solar system that really generates its own light is the sun. We talked about the solar and the sidereal day. They're not equal. Remember how different, what was the difference between them? Anyone, anyone? Four minutes? The four minute difference? Solar day is what we actually use to tell time, 24 hours. Sidereal day is 23 hours and 56 minutes. And the difference is because the Earth is rotating around the sun, is revolving around the sun. Okay. Same thing with the synodic month and the sidereal month and the tropical year and the sidereal year. It's all the different motions of the Earth. The Earth is revolving around the sun. And it, is, it has the precession where it's wobbling, its axis is wobbling, and that throws off the two different years. So all these, everything being in motion at once means that there are different ways to measure things. So synodic month was the phases, that was 29 days, or 29 and a half days. The sidereal month was how long it really took the moon to go around the Earth once, which was 27.3 days. Distances, again, we're just starting on distances. We'll be coming back to that over the entire semester. So our first method of getting distances was talked about triangulation and we talked about parallax, actually measuring the angles to the stars. It only works for the very nearest stars. And then eclipses. They occur only occasionally because everything's tilted a little bit. So if everything was in a nice flat piece of paper like you draw it, then eclipse would occur every single month. And it would be no big deal, right? Eclipse occurs every month, then you, know, you wouldn't be terrified when the sun disappears because it disappeared last month and the month before that, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But when they're tilted at five degrees, you only, and you only get eclipses once a year, usually, and they don't always occur in the same spot. So if you have one that occurred in Harrisburg now, you might not get another one for you know, 50, 100 years. So people wouldn't necessarily remember it. And of course, sometimes the eclipses can occur on days like Saturday, right? When nobody saw anything, if an eclipse had occurred on Saturday, we wouldn't have known. And then finally, scientific method. Observation, theory, prediction, observation, theory, prediction, observation, and so on. Goes on forever. You never prove the scientific theory correct. You can prove it wrong, and you might find cases where it doesn't work, so sometimes you throw it out all together. Sometimes you just find that it's, you just need to change it a little bit. Okay, this is not going to, 
All right, we'll do it by hand today. Okay, so that finishes chapter zero. Now we're on to the regularly numbered chapters. We're going to jump right into one. One is up there for you for the slides. Here's we're going to talk about the planet. We're coming back and talk about our planets right now. Okay. Chapter one, titled The Copernican Revolution. And again, as I said with the last chapter, your book, the book does breeze through a lot of this. This is another chapter that I would spend about two weeks on in Astronomy 103. So there's a lot of material here. We're just getting a very basic overview of it. But in a way we have to because we have so much material to cover on stars and galaxies and the universe that if I spent all the time I'd love to on these, we'd, we'd get, maybe might get through stars and start talking about galaxies and the semester would be over. So we kind of have to breeze through all of this and just give you a very light overview of what's going on here. Let's skip right into it. So chapter one, we're going to talk about the planets and how they, how they move. And this was the big thing. It's one of the things that will go back to what we talked about just at the beginning of this class about the scientific method and scientific theories. And we're going to talk about all of that right now. The birth of modern astronomy, so what we consider modern astronomy, and laws of planetary motion. So this we're coming into talking about Newton and some of the other astronomers of the time. And then of course we'll come back at the end and like I did this time we'll give you a summary of what we talked about in that chapter. So here's what we see. The sun, the moon, and the stars are all really, really nice for ancient astronomers. They could go out and look at them and, you know, the sun rose in the east and set in the west. And the moon did the same thing and the stars all rise in the east and set in the west. So they're always moving very consistently. And even over longer times, the moon rises in the east and sets in the west, but it also is slowly moving through the stars. But it moves very simply. It just constantly moves one direction at a pretty consistent speed and doesn't change much. So everything there tells us that the Earth's at the center of the universe. Everything's moving around us. Very simple observations. We didn't need any complicated theories to explain them. And if we didn't have planets, you know, we could still think that. The planets are what had problems because the planets do these things. First of all, they move with respect to the stars. So that's how they got their name as planets, meaning wanderers, because they were, looked like stars. I mean, if you just look at the, if you look at a planet in the sky, you can't tell the difference between it and a star. It doesn't look any different. Get a telescope, binoculars, you can. But just to the naked eye, so to these astronomers thousands of years ago, they couldn't tell the difference. But the planets also change their speed change their brightness, they get brighter and they get fainter. And they have what we call retrograde motion, which means sometimes they move backwards. So if you were watching this planet and tracking it, you'd be watching it move and in November it would be here, and in December it would be here, and in January it would be here. It's all fine, it's moving in one direction. Well guess what, all of a sudden in February it turned around and went back the other way. And in March it was further around. In April it starts to stops again and starts to come back. And then in May, now it's going back the way it was going most of the year. But for those couple months, 
Instead of traveling from west to east, it's traveling from east to west across the sky. It's going backwards. And over time, you can see this with a number of different. They'll just form this little loop and go backwards all of a sudden. That's much harder to explain if the Earth is the center. Why is the planet doing that? Why is it you know, moving around the Earth like this and then suddenly stopping and now going backwards for a little bit and deciding to, you know, why is it going back and forth? It's a much harder thing to explain if you put the Earth at the center. It's very easy to explain if you put the Sun at the center. But there were other, other issues with trying to get that is that you know, at the time it's hard to see how the Earth is moving. Does the Earth feel like it's moving? It doesn't. You don't feel the motion of the Earth around the Sun. Yes, we're moving, but the whole, everything, when everything is moving together, you don't really notice it. Because everything's moving. Even though even very, very fast, you just don't notice that. But this was the problem with them. The planets seemed to, mo- seemed to move. And they went backwards. So here's how we explained it. Again, this is Earth at the center. So we said, okay, the planet moves around the Earth in general, but it really doesn't move on this circle. It moves on another circle. It moves on a circle centered on this circle. So the planet actually goes around on this little circle as this circle goes around the Earth. Gets to be more complicated. That's the simple version. That's not the one that actually works. That's the simpler version. And it doesn't make sense to us from now because why is this planet orbiting? You know, we're too too used to thinking gravity. I mean, we've grown up thinking gravity. So what is this planet orbiting? It's just orbiting around empty space. Does the model work? Yeah. It works just fine. If you put enough epicycles, and sometimes you had to put another cycle on this, you had to have a circle with a circle on it, and a circle on it, and a circle on it, you might have to do five or ten layers, you could predict the motions of the planets just fine. But you see, when we're going back, when we talked about the scientific theories, we're getting away from that simpleness. It's getting much more complicated. But it does work. You can still make it work. To make it even better, is there someone? No? Okay. To make it even better, just think this was thousands of years ago. So, no calculators, no computers, no nothing, all done by hand, all calculations done by hand. So, when you're calculating however many circles and with each of them moving at a different speed, you know, you could make everything work just right, but there's a lot of math. A lot of work. You know, nowadays, oh, we'll put, put in, add a few extra circles. It doesn't matter because the computer is going to calculate it all for us anyway. Back here, you had to actually calculate everything yourself. But yes, you could predict it. And it would work. It would actually explain the motions of the planets. But, as I said, it got more and more complicated. So you had the Earth here. Here's the model at the time. You had the Earth at the center. And you had the moon going around the Earth. The moon just going around the Earth. That was perfectly fine. You had orbit for Mercury, and then you had an epicycle for Mercury. You had an orbit for Venus, and you had a bigger epicycle. Venus had a bigger epicycle. They had to vary the sizes to account for all the motions that they saw. Again, you could do it. The sun was simple. Sun, sun was very easy. Sun just went around in a nice circle. But Mars and Jupiter and Saturn 
also had to have epicycles. And again, it would just explain if you put the right speed of this circle moving around the orbit and of the planet moving on the smaller circle, the epicycle, you could explain exactly what you saw. So, a good scientific model. It's testable. I can make the model and say, here's all the circles, here's how it's moving. And here's where the planet will be, you know, next July 15th at 10 a.m. The planet will be there. I'll do 10 p.m., make it dark. So, you know, next July 15th at 10 p.m., here's where the planet's going to be and see if I'm right. So it is a good scientific model. It's testable. We know it's wrong now, but it is a good scientific model. Because we could make predictions based on it and we could test them. But you can see, and again, this is the simpler version. There's only one epicycle. There were versions that added multiple epicycles. Not just for the different planets, but on top of each planet. So maybe you needed a circle on top of, you know, when you started to get five and ten layers of circles to try to explain the motions, it got to be overly complicated. And that's when we came up with, or Copernicus was the, one of the first to come up with the heliocentric or sun-centered model of the solar system. So it explains the retrograde motion a lot easier. You don't need all of the epicycles. You still needed a few. He didn't quite fix everything. You know? Copernicus made a big change here, but he didn't make the other big change that came a little bit later. But the idea here for the epicycles, or for the epicycle, for the retrograde motion, is all that's happening is you look at the Earth here, the Earth is moving this way at one speed, so now the Earth is moving around the Sun, and Mars is moving here. Well, at some point here between where, about five and seven pretty much, we're passing Mars. So we're, going, we're, we're inside, we're closer to the Sun, we're moving faster than Mars, and at one point there we're passing it. Now when you're, going, when you're driving on the highway and you're passing a car, what, what does it look like it's doing? It looks like it's going backwards, right? It's not, we sure hope not, right? We hope it's not going backwards on the highway. But it looks like it's going backwards. So Mars really isn't moving backwards relative to the stars. It just looks like it is because we're zooming by it on our inside lap. And it looks like it's going backwards for that short time. Once we get far enough away, then it starts to appear to move forward again. So all it is, and I say, just like, the, say, just like driving down the highway, you pass a car, it looks like it's going backwards. It's really not, but it looks like it is. And that's the same thing we see here. And that was a much easier way to explain retrograde motion. You didn't need all of those epicycles because you could explain how it moved, moved just by putting the Earth at the center. You got rid of all those epicycles. Again, I said almost. Because Copernicus was still stuck on circles. All the orbits were circles. And when we talked about epicycles, previously when we talked about the older models, everything was a circle. So everything orbited in circles. The heavens were perfect. And circle is the perfect shape. So everything moved in circles. Copernicus didn't change that. He still said everything moved in circles. So we still found out eventually that Copernicus had to add epicycles to his model to explain some of the little motions. The fix for that came a little bit later because things aren't all circles. They're close to circles, but not quite. 
Now, jump ahead a little bit here to Galileo. Galileo, not the inventor of the telescope, but was the first one who is known at least to have turned a telescope to the sky and recorded, the, recorded his observations. So these are some of the things that he observed. and I'm going to add a couple more for you too. But first of all, he observed that the moon had mountains, valleys, and craters. Now when you look at the moon now, you can't really see that it has mountains or valleys. You see, a little, you see some brighter areas and some darker areas, but you really don't see anything specific. With a telescope, you can easily see mountains, valleys, craters, all sorts of things on the moon. Why is that important? Remember, everything in the heavens had to be perfect. The moon was in the heavens, so it should have been a perfect sphere. So all the objects in the heavens should have been perfect spheres and moving in perfect circles. The moon had all these things, had craters, had valleys, mountains, so all sorts of structure to the surface, which made it look more like the Earth, which was imperfect. Now you can get away with it on the moon, right? The moon's close enough to the Earth, the Earth has just corrupted it. So it's just, it's, we've ruined the moon because it's too close to our, you know, our corrupting influence. But he saw the same thing with the sun. The sun wasn't perfect either. The sun had spots. Imperfections here, but it was actually sunspots that he observed. So there were dark patches on the surface of the sun. So the sun isn't perfect either. And it rotates. You know, no reason for the sun. We didn't think, why would anything rotate? The sun actually, we can, we can observe it rotating. You can watch those spots. Of course, you couldn't see the rotation if it didn't have the imperfections, right? If it was a perfectly smooth sphere, could you tell if it was rotating, just looking at it? you wouldn't be able to tell. But here you have imperfections. You can watch them move across the surface of the sun and you can actually measure its rotation. It takes it about a month to rotate once. Now come the bit, well, uh, let's see, let me do those two. I'll do these two then I'll come back to a couple others that they don't mention here. Jupiter. When he looked at Jupiter, he found three little stars, four little stars around it. And as he watched them, those stars moved around Jupiter. You could see them go from one side of Jupiter to the other side and back slowly over a few days. And essentially what he discovered was the moons of Jupiter. So Jupiter actually has moons. Now that was a very important one to sort of kick the Earth out of the center of the solar system. Because now there's something that is not orbiting the Earth. The whole idea was that the Earth was the the Earth was the center, so everything was orbiting the Earth. But here's something that is very definitely not orbiting the Earth. It's orbiting Jupiter. So it showed us that, and it also showed us that Jupiter could move and not leave its moons behind it. So it could actually even be traveling around the Earth, even let's leave the Earth at the center. If Jupiter is still traveling around the Earth with these moons, it can move and its moons go with it. So it means that something can move and not leave, so something could, there can be more than one center of motion. You can actually move and not lose that. Again, we understand it more with gravity now and it's a lot easier, but this was before, we're still at Galileo, is a little before Newton. So we haven't quite gotten to the time of Newton yet and gravity yet. But the big one was that Venus has phases like the moon. So when he looked at Venus, he saw that it had sometimes a thin crescent phase, 
sometimes an almost full phase, or a gibbous phase, or a quarter phase. It had a whole range of phases. That cannot happen in a, if the Earth is at the center. Because, and I'm going to go back here, two slides to do the picture. When we look at Earth and Venus, if Venus is here, when we see Venus in the sky, have you ever heard of Venus as the morning star or the evening star? It can never get very far away from the sun in the sky. It's always relatively close. You don't see Venus in the middle of the night. If you see something really bright in the middle of the night, not Venus. But Venus is visible right before, sun, before sunrise or after sunset, depending on the time of year. So essentially, not only did this epicycle have to be stuck in between, or have to be a certain size and moving to account for the motions, it also had to be stuck on the line connecting the Earth and the Sun. So as the Earth and the Sun rotated, this whole epicycle moved with the Sun. So it kept Venus always between the Earth and the Sun. So Venus was never seen over here, opposite the Sun in the sky. So because it had to be trapped here, Venus could only be visible either in the morning or the evening, depending on which side you're looking at. And it would always be a thin crescent phase because it's between the Earth and the Sun. So when we talk about the Moon, we said the Moon phase was a crescent when it was very close to the Sun, when it was getting close to the new phase. But no matter where you are here, it would get to a new phase here when it gets closest to the Sun, and then it would become a crescent to a bigger crescent, but then it would get a smaller crescent again because when you get here, again, you're between the Earth and the Sun. So the phase, if you're in between the Earth and the Sun, is a new phase again. So when Galileo observed and found that Venus could have any possible phase, it, was a, it, was a, it definitely pro it proved this theory wrong. It said this cannot be right because there is no way to get a full phase of Venus under with the Earth at the center of the solar system. So that was the big one. That was the one that kind of the other ones helped, you know, having some things that were not perfect, but you could, you know, you could explain those away. Jupiter having moons, well, maybe something, but Venus having phases was an observation that proved the scientific theory putting the Earth at the center is wrong, because there is no way to get those phases with the Earth at the center. Now, some of the, a couple of the other things that he observed that they don't, didn't mention here, and they may mention in your textbook, I'm not sure if they do or not, I'll have to double check. But he also observed Saturn. And he almost observed the rings of Saturn, but not quite. So, when he looked at Saturn, he saw, that's my marker, he saw the nice disk of Saturn here, and he saw kind of a big blob over here and a big blob over here. His telescope, he had a very small telescopes, his telescopes were only a couple inches in diameter, so they're very, very small. They didn't have a lot of magnifying power. So he could see Saturn as a disk, and he could see that there was a blob on either side. But he couldn't resolve it into the disk. He couldn't resolve it into a disk of the rings. What he did see is that when he'd look at it a few years later, he'd just see Saturn and nothing. So he was trying to, he spent time trying to find out whether these are two moons, but then where did they go? They just disappeared, not just for a short time if they could have been in front of or behind the planet, but they just disappeared. Now we know now what he was seeing was the rings, and when you look at Saturn's rings, which are very thin, 
If you look at them edge on, you're not going to see anything. If you look at them when they're tilted towards us or away from us, then you tend to see the beautiful pictures of Saturn that you've probably seen you know, in the textbook or elsewhere. So he almost saw the rings of Saturn. He did detect them, but he didn't know. He didn't have enough power in his telescope to be able to tell exactly what they were. And the other one he discovered was the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So when you take your telescope, have you ever seen the Milky Way galaxy up overhead? Again, not from Harrisburg. Not going to see it from here. You need a really dark sight, but you can see that band of light up overhead. It, when you take a telescope to that, it actually resolves and there's actually many thousands of stars. Now, why did that help this thing about the heavens being constant and unchanging and all of that? Was that it was said that there were a fixed number of stars. You know, there are so many thousands of stars and that's it. Well, Galileo with one swing of his telescope, all of a sudden there's now thousands more stars that he just discovered. So it wasn't. The big one, or big two, are Jupiter and Venus, and the biggest one being Venus. Those are the most important of his discoveries because there's no way in the phases of Venus that he can possibly have the Earth at the center. So, and here's the, here's the better explanation. I went back, should have, should have gone forward a picture. I forgot I had this one. If we have the Earth at the center and the Sun going around it, so this is the same kind of diagram that I sort of, I sort of tried to show you there, but here they got a little, we got a little bit better diagram for it. This dotted line between the Earth and the Sun and the center of Venus's epicycle always moved together, which meant that sometimes Venus would be visible in the morning sky, sometimes in the evening sky. And it would go have a new phase and a new, two new phases, and it would go from a waxing crescent to as big as it got to a waning crescent, but would never get full, never get even half full. And then it would go back from waxing to waning again. So it would just go around and around like that. So that's essentially a prediction of this model. So once Galileo had the telescope and was able to observe, essentially he proves this model wrong. Because you have to find a way to change this so that you can get a full phase of Venus is not something that you can do while still keeping the fact that you can't observe Venus at 2 o'clock in the morning. So Venus can't be seen at 2 in the morning. And if you try to get the full phase, you've got to get Venus on the other side of the sun. And you can't do that. You can do it very easily here. Because you can have a new phase. You can have a full phase when it's on the other side of the sun, although it's not very visible because it's pushing right into the sun there. And you can have the waxing crescent, gibbous, gibbous, waning side. And you can see all of the phases. And you explain it very easily. And you also explain the relative sizes changing. You get that the full size is much, much smaller. So when Venus is full, it looks much smaller as seen from the Earth than otherwise. When it's closer than when it's a thin crescent, it gets much bigger. There's a little bit of a change here. You get, do get the thin crescents are bigger, but you also get small thin crescents. You don't get those on this one. So essentially, it makes predictions there that are, not, that are found to be incorrect. Now Kepler, and we'll finish up here today, because I've got Kepler's laws of planetary motion. I'll come back and go over all of them next time. But Kepler was a mathematician, essentially. He did a bunch of calculations based on a previous astronomer's observations. And 
previous astronomer was named Tycho. And he had gone through and he had spent many years, now we're going back a little bit because Tycho was pre-Galileo. And he made observations, naked eye observations, very accurate of the planets. So he looked at Mars, he looked at Venus, he looked at Jupiter and made very, very accurate measurements of exactly where those planets were. And Kepler, again, no computers, all by hand or with his you know, squad of mathematicians calculating for him, went through and tried to decipher all these th and find the model that would actually work. And his first law, again, which I'll come back to next time because I don't want to do all three again next time, was that instead of being a circle, instead of the orbits of the planets being a circle, the planetary orbits are ellipses. And if you know any ellipses, ellipses is a circle that's just a little bit squashed or a little more squashed depending on how, squ how flat it is. But it is a little bit squashed from a circle. Now if you put them to scale for a planetary orbit, an ellipse and a circle of about the same size, you can barely tell the difference. But it's enough that when you're trying to make accurate observations, it does make, it does make a big difference and causes caused all these problems. If the orbits had been very elliptical, like for example the orbit of a comet is extremely elliptical, it would have been no big deal. People would have figured out a long time before because they weren't so close to circles. It would have been easy to tell the difference. But we'll come back and go over this next time and I'll go over the other. I'll come back to this law. Just want to give you a little introduction on it since we're about out of time here. And then I will go over the rest of Kepler's laws and we'll finish up, we should be able to finish up this chapter on Wednesday. So questions, questions, don't forget if you have not done the extra credit assignment or turned in your lab from the, those who took it home, I have those who left it with me, uh, make sure you get me those today and email me the extra credit assignment tonight. I'll see you Wednesday.